29, verse 16, through Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Morning, everyone. I'm Mark, and I'm so grateful to be here with you all this morning. Uh, just a quick uh, overview of my family life. I'm married to Holly. We've been married for uh, 12 years. We have three boys, uh, Joshua, Justin, and Jesse, uh, who are nine, seven, and four. I always forget the last one's age. Uh, nine, seven, and four, I think I got that right. Uh, we live on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and I'm the pastor at Joy Manhattan. And I'm so grateful for the ministry of Exilic. Uh, have admired the ministry and leadership here uh, from a distance for so long. And uh, so much respect for Pastors Aaron and Jean and the rest of the crew. And Pastor Aaron, I think, is kind of an emerging voice in the Asian American uh, pastor, this upcoming generation. So I look up to him in a lot of ways and so grateful to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, but we are in a series at my church on the seven uh, deadly sins. And I preached a sermon recently on the sin of envy. And I wanted to share that with you because out of all the seven deadly sins, the sin of envy is perhaps the greatest threat to our happiness, our contentment, and our joy. And I know pastors with young kids love to quote Disney movies because it's the only movie that we have time to watch, right? Disney movies. And if you think about the movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, ultimately it's a story about envy. I mean, you, know, you all know the line, uh, the, the wicked queen who is looking in that magic mirror uh, and asks, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And for years, the mirror responds back, it's you, of course, beautiful queen. But at one point in the story, Snow White enters the picture, and when the queen asks the mirror, who is the fairest of them all, starts to respond by saying Snow White. And she is filled with fury because she's so envious that there's someone else more beautiful than her in all the land. And it leads her to misery. And she plots out to kill Snow White because she's so furious, filled with envy. 
And while we may not be driven to kill someone because of our anger, uh, it can similarly drive us to so much despair in our lives. And therein, in the movie Snow White and the Seven Doors, is a picture of, of the power of envy to make us absolutely miserable. And so I want to talk about what is envy? What are the contours of envy? Uh, I want to expose the folly of envy. And finally, I want to talk about what is the key to contentment? How do we discover contentment? So one, what exactly is envy? There's a lot of definitions that are floating out there, but I want to start with what the Bible says about this idea of coveting. If you know the Ten Commandments, the last commandment is this uh, prohibition against coveting, desiring what someone else has, their relationships, their life, uh, their success, their money and possessions. And if you think about the Ten Commandments, that final prohibition, do not covet, in a way it summarizes many of the Ten Commandments. Uh, do not worship other gods. At the core of that command is envy, right? We covet other gods. We want to worship other gods, and so God says, do not worship those other gods. Uh, when we covet what someone else has, when it drives us to resentment, we often experience hate, anger. Uh, God calls that hate in our hearts similar to anger as well, to, to murder as well, right? Uh, when we covet, we steal, we lie, we commit adultery, right? Envy is the root of so many commandments, uh, prohibitions in the Ten Commandments. And of course, having desires for things is a normal part of human experience, but where desire goes wrong is when it's marked by discontentment. You know, we're not satisfied with our jobs. Uh, we're not satisfied with our relationships, our possessions, our status in life, our friendships. We crave, we idealize another person's life. We want that life instead of the one that we have. And these desires become must-haves. We can't live without them. And in our passage that was read for us, that's the plight of Leah, and that's our plight too. In this passage, Leah is uh, the wife of Jacob, who is the grandson of Father Abraham, who is the father of the Christian faith. Uh, he's the one that God calls out and says, I'm going to uncover and unfold my plan of redemption through you, Abraham, and all of your descendants, and I will save the entire world through your children and their children and their children, and so on and so forth. And Jacob is the third generation in that promise. And in our passage today, he's looking for a wife. And if you know the story, he's working for his uncle Laban, who asks him what his wages, and he wants to marry the beautiful Rachel. Even though it would have been the custom in that age to marry off the firstborn daughter first, Leah. But it says that Leah has weak eyes which is either a figure of speech that means that she wasn't attractive or it literally could have meant that she had a lazy eye or was cross-eyed or something like that, but she had weak eyes. And Jacob is notorious uh, for being a deceiver, if you know the story, and he gets a taste of his own medicine. Uh, Laban is even more deceptive than Jacob. He tricks Jacob into marrying Leah first. But Jacob is so deeply in love, he's willing to work another seven years for Rachel. That's what love does, doesn't it? Seven years just feels like a few days, doesn't it? And in one of the more understated moments of heartbreak, I think, in all of Genesis, uh, there's a slide here in verse 30. It says that Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Can you imagine being married to someone who doesn't love you in return? 
and perhaps loves your sibling or a friend more than you. It's the tragedy of unrequited love. In this passage, the, the genre of the Korean drama was invented right here, right? And every K-drama is an echo of this story of Leah and Jacob, isn't it? Love triangle, unrequited love. And Leah so desires Jacob's love, it leads her to absolute misery. She is so unhappy with her life. Her entire life starts to revolve around her hopes and dreams for bearing Jacob children. She mistakenly believes that if she does that, if she bears sons for Jacob, she will win his affection. Her discontentment leads her to invest her entire life in winning Jacob's love. When that discontentment in our hearts, when it goes unchecked, it often devolves into resentment. The resentment from envy stems not only from wanting what someone else has, from desiring their life, but we start to resent the very fact that they have what we can't have. We start to hate them for having the life that we've always wanted. It's a common narrative. That was the queen's downfall in Snow White. And later in our passage in Genesis, Leah also begins to resent her sister, Rachel. And what is it for you? Where is it hard for you to rejoice in other people's successes? When other people around you fail, is there a part of you that secretly rejoices when that happens as well? Those are key markers to expose the sin of envy in our hearts. And envy is so uniquely hideous because it's so easy to hide within. It feels uh, so petty, like something that should be reserved for junior high students, right? It feels so petty inside. And I think the reason why envy is so hard to confess more than other sins, I mean, sometimes it's easy to confess the sin of pride or anger, greed. Those seem a little bit more socially acceptable, but to confess that you are envious, there's a certain stigma that's attached to the sin of envy, isn't there? Why is it so hard to confess envy? Perhaps it's because more than any other sin, it uniquely reveals our, our shame, what we are ashamed of, why we feel unworthy inside, our need for validation. Envy simply exposes the unworthiness that is eating us up inside. There's a counselor who was talking with a teenage boy who he called Sam. And Sam was envious of another boy in his class named Ryan. And Ryan was uh, handsome, athletic. Uh, he had everything that Sam wanted. All the guys wanted to hang out with him and be him. All the girls wanted to date him. And Sam showed up to counseling and he started complaining I want what Ryan has. Why does Ryan make me feel so bad about myself? And the counselor corrected him and said, well, Sam, it's not that Ryan makes you feel bad about yourself. It's that you already feel bad about yourself. You already feel so ashamed inside. You crave validation. And your envy is simply exposing that shame that you are trying to escape underneath. Sam believes that, mistakenly, believes that by having what Ryan has will help him to overcome his sense of unworthiness. Envy simply brings that to the surface. And I imagine for Leah, she was probably always compared to Rachel growing up. 
She knew she wasn't as desired, wasn't as attractive, and it fed her sense of shame inside that she could never measure up. And to escape it, she longs for Jacob's love. And maybe once she's able to attain that love, she'll finally feel validated and worthy. And she idealizes and envies Rachel's life, thinking that if she got what Rachel had, it would finally end her shame. You see, at the end of the day, envy is not really about desiring what someone else has. Envy reveals what we are already ashamed of inside. What are you chasing in your life that you think will help you escape your own shame? What do you crave that you think will ultimately give you that sense of validation in your own life? Envy is simply a surface level symptom of a deep sense of shame that you have inside. Those are some of the contours of envy that I'll return to in a moment, but I want to talk about number two, the folly of envy, the folly of envy. And I want to share a little bit of my own story too. I remember when I was in college, I entered studying uh, engineering, and engineering is a pretty miserable major. My apologies to the engineering majors out there. Uh, So much, you just have to study all the time. And I remember uh, Saturday afternoon, all my friends are going out to play basketball, football, and I had to like always hit the library because I was always behind on my studying. I so envied that freedom that they had. I was a sophomore in college and I was envying their freedom that they had. And so I switched my major. I switched my major and it was one of the best decisions of my life and I was so happy for about six months. Because what happened was that I, my peers started getting jobs in New York. I was living in uh, Illinois at that point. They were getting jobs in New York on Wall Street. And I came to visit them one weekend, and I was so enamored by New York and that kind of life. And I remember wanting to wake up early to watch people commute to work because I was so excited about having that life. The briefcases that they carried, the suits that they were wearing, I was like, that is, that looks amazing. I want that life. And my friends were asking me, like, why are you waking up? I was like, oh, I'm going to go watch commuters. They're like, okay, you're on your own. I'm not going to go with you on that excursion. But I still wanted that life, and guess what? I eventually came out to New York and I landed a job. And I was so happy for about six months because my colleagues all started getting other jobs that were less demanding and paid more. And so I started envying that life. And guess what happened? I landed a job in that same field too. I was so happy for six months. And peers started getting married. I wanted to get married. I envied that life. I got married, was happy for about a year. And uh, you realize that marriage takes so much work. And, well, maybe parenting, maybe having kids will give me what I'm searching for. We finally had kids, and they're so cute for about six months. And you realize parenting is extremely difficult, one of the hardest things that we've ever done in our lives. The point that I'm trying to make is that, as someone said, the best cure for hedonism is an attempt to practice it. The best cure for finding this elusive, fulfilling life by investing in things of this world is entirely elusive. The best cure is an attempt to practice it. The actor Matt Damon, who has gone down in history as one of the youngest Academy Award winners for writing uh, Good Will Hunting with, with Ben Affleck, in, in an interview he said, I'm so glad that I won this Academy Award at such a young age because I can't imagine spending the rest of my life 
chasing something that is so empty. I'm so glad that I got that experience out of the way and I realized that bankruptcy of this thing that everyone in my industry is chasing after. As a couple celebrities once said, that once they reach the top of the mountain, they realize that there is in fact nothing there. There is nothing there. This simply reflects the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I'm going to read uh, some verses there from Ecclesiastes. I undertook great projects. This is the person who wrote Ecclesiastes had everything that you could ever imagine. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You see, we, we believe the fallacy that the grass is greener on the other side, but it is never greener on the other side. The grass is brown everywhere. And we think that we're the exception. You know, it's because, well, everyone else is unhappy because they just haven't found the right person to marry. They haven't found the right job. Uh, they made these decisions in their lives. You know, I'm going to be the exception to that rule. I'm actually going to find the right person. I'm going to find the right job. My life will be perfect. I'm going to find that elusive happiness that has escaped everyone else in human history. I'm going to be the one to find it. And we keep searching. But the reality is there is nothing out there that you will find that will be the answer that you're searching for. If we look at other people's lives, people that we idealize, we think that their lives are perfect, but when you dig beneath the surface, you realize that their lives are not perfect. Everybody is fighting some kind of battle. Everyone is experiencing something extremely difficult in their lives and just hides it really well. In our passage, uh, Leah so wants Jacob's love she even names her sons according to that desire. And I'm going to read from verse 31. Uh, I think there's a slide for this too, but it says, When the Lord saw that Rachel was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Uh, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. You see, Leah is searching, and she wants what Rachel has. And you would think that in this story, Rachel, the one who has it all, would be extremely content and happy with her life. But what does the text say? When you read that last verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 1, it says that when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Give me children or I'll die. She is so filled with, consumed by her envy that she would rather die than live with that reality that Leah has something that she doesn't. And in some way, by, by not giving Leah what she craved, God was protecting her from this endless pursuit of something that would never satisfy her in the end. And Rachel was exhibit A. The grass is, in fact, brown everywhere. 
That's the folly of envy, exposing the folly of envy. And lastly, I want to talk about where do we find contentment? Leah finally realizes the futility of it all, and she ends up naming her last son Judah. And I've got a few points in this last point here, but I want to talk about first where we find contentment. It's in this idea that A.W. Tozer calls the blessedness of possessing nothing. The blessedness of possessing nothing. And it gets at this idea in the Beatitudes, this idea of what it means to be poor in spirit, this poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When you have nothing in this life, that's when God is trying to show you that in him you actually have everything you ever needed. Those moments where you feel like life is not going well for me, all these things that I aspire to in my career and in relationships, these things that you had wanted, when God doesn't provide them, he's trying to whisper to you that in possessing nothing, you in fact have everything. New parents will talk about this experience of uh, weaning their children off of uh, the mother's milk. And if some of you are parents, you can relate to this. But I remember when my first son was born, as a new parent, I was so shocked. And I shouldn't be shocked when I think about it, but he just cried all the time, right? And obviously, they can't talk to me like, oh, dad, can you give me some more milk? Like, the only way they know how to express themselves is through crying. And just crying all the time, wanting the mother's, my wife's milk, all the nursing, just wanting that milk. All that. It's the only thing they knew how to do when they are younger. There comes a point in time in parenting when you have to wean the child off of the mother's milk because they need to learn how to soothe themselves just by being in the presence of the mother without her milk. You have to train them to not so need and be desperate for that milk every other hour, but just to soothe themselves and to be still in the presence of the mother. And the Bible gives this picture of contentment by offering up that image of a weaned child. And all of us, in some ways, we are like unweaned children. We're, we're latched onto the things of this world, crying out for God to give us more and more, whatever it might be for you, we're latched onto them. And with every experience in life, what God is doing is he's slowly unweaning us off of those things that we so tightly hold on to in life. And we cry. We cry out to him. But over time, what God wants us to do is to be soothed by simply being in his presence, even when we don't get what we want. That's the picture of contentment that God wants to provide to you as well. Like an unweaned child in the presence of God. He is trying to wean us off of those things so we can sit still, enjoy, and be content in his presence alone. So the blessedness of possessing nothing. Number two, how do we find contentment? Trusting that God is preparing something better. Leah, through an act of her will, decided to trust in the Lord. And she decided to give up what she so desired and instead placed her trust in the Lord. So let me, let me read verse 35 in chapter 29. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. You see, Leah didn't know it in the moment. She perhaps didn't know it in her entire lifetime. But Judah's line would be the line of promise. That's the line that Jesus would ultimately come from. 
And Leah, through Judah, would eventually become one of the mothers of Jesus himself. You see, God withheld Jacob's love from Leah because he was planning something far better. Namely, this pivotal role in the entire history of God's redemption to save and reconcile the world to himself. God was withholding something because he wanted to provide Leah with something better. In God withholding certain things from you, he's preparing something for you that is far better than anything you could ever ask for or imagine as well. God is doing a thousand things behind the scenes. Behind the circumstances of your life, he's producing something far better than anything you could ever write up yourself for your own life. And God loves to use the weak things in the world to subvert the strong. He loves to use the broken things of this world to remind everyone that everything is from the hand of God. Everything is by the grace of God. I want to read this quote from uh, Tim Keller. And he says, God constantly chooses and works through the second sons, the one without social power. He chooses Abel rather than Cain, Isaac rather than Ishmael, Jacob rather than Esau, Joseph rather than Reuben. And when he works with women, he does not choose women with the cultural power of beauty and sexuality. He does his saving work through old, infertile Sarah, not young Hagar, through unloved and unattractive Leah, not lovely Rachel. God repeatedly refuses to allow his gracious activity to run along expected lines of worldly influence and privilege. He puts in the center of the person whom the world would put on the periphery. All of us can identify with Leah in some way. We feel so ashamed of the people that we are. We feel unloved, unattractive, not successful. We feel like we don't measure up. But those are the very people whom God wants to use in this world. By embracing your weakness, by embracing your unattractiveness, God wants to include you in his plan of redemption in human history. And lastly, the last way we can find contentment is by choosing compassion over envy. Choosing compassion over envy. It's a point that I made before, but everybody, every life that you idealize, underneath the surface, everyone is struggling massively. Everybody is, is suffering through something profound. And when we have compassion on people, it's hard to envy them. It's very hard to envy someone when you're feeling compassion for them. I remember reading this book in high school called uh, A Tale of Two Cities. And how many of you read A Tale of Two Cities? Uh, it's a, a Charles Dickens book, and it starts off with those famous words, uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I don't remember anything else in that book uh, <laughs> un, un, until you get to the end, because the ending is so powerful. And it's also about this story of these three main characters, and I, hopefully I get the names right, Charles Darnay, uh, Sidney Carton, and Lucy Manette. And it's a similar love triangle. It's a story of unrequited love. Uh, Charles and Sidney, they're, they're both handsome, strapping young men. They look very alike. But they both love this woman named Lucy. But Lucy chooses Charles over Sidney. And Sidney's entire life is filled with discontentment 
and resentment towards Charles because he doesn't have the love of his life. What's remarkable, though, in this story, at some point at the end, uh, Charles's character, he's involved in the French Revolution. He gets arrested, and he's waiting in line to be executed, to be guillotined, right? And in that moment, Sidney, the one who didn't have the love of Lucy, the one who so desired Charles's life, he sees Charles in that execution line, and he has compassion on him. He starts thinking about his, uh, Lucy's life as a widow. If she were to lose her husband Charles, what kind of life would that be for her and for their child? And in a shocking turn of events in that story, Sidney drugs Charles and takes him out of that execution line, and he goes into the line himself to give his life, to die for Charles, so that Charles could be reunited with his wife Lucy and with their child. It's an amazing story of substitution and sacrificial love. And at the end of that story, the, one of the last quotes in the book, I'm going to read this for us. It says, this is the words of Sidney after he is wanting to give his life. He says, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And therein you find an echo of the gospel. You find an echo of what Jesus said, that it is far more blessed to give than to receive. The way that we overcome the envy in our hearts is by recognizing that it is far, far better to rejoice in what other people have, even if it means that we can't have it. It is so much better to give than to receive. What empowers us to do that, to give of ourselves, to rejoice in what other people have, what gives us the resources to do that is by recognizing that in Jesus we have everything that we already need, that he gives us the contentment that we so crave, that when we get to the top of the mountain and we realize that there is nothing there, we find, in fact, that in Jesus we have everything that we ever craved. And only in him will we find that our longings ultimately will cease. It's only in him. The grass is brown everywhere. But in Jesus, he is our good shepherd who leads us besides quiet waters, leads us to the green pastures. It's only in him that we can find that kind of life. And I want to close with this prayer that we can pray together. Uh, I'll read it for us. You can pray along in your own heart. But I'll close with this last prayer. It says, Father, I want to know you, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then you will make the place of my feet glorious. Then my heart will have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you will be the light of it, and there will be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray for us as we close. God, uh, all of us wrestle with the sin of envy in our hearts. We look at our own lives, the things that we lack, and we idealize what other people have. We want the lives that they have. 
And we're not thankful for what you've given us. Sometimes we even resent other people for having those very things. But God, expose the folly of envy in our hearts. Help us to see that that search for something that will fill us with contentment, if we find it in anything other than you, we will not find what we're looking for. It's only in you where our longings will find their end. Help us to remember what Christ did, that though he had everything, he gave it all up, gave his life as a substitute for us so that even though we may feel like we have nothing, in Christ we in fact have everything that we need. Expose the folly in our hearts, God, the folly of envy. Help us to see the blessedness in possessing nothing in those moments when we feel like nothing is going well for us. It's then that we can cry out to you, asking you to fill us, to give us what we're actually longing for. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.